why I think sex is so powerful. It is a space where we can do so much. It's a space where we learn, where we teach, where we evolve, where we are challenged, where we explore our bodies and the limits of our own bodies. It's a place where we can explore power dynamics, fantasies, sort of an uncensored space for me of play. That was Tristan Terramino. Tristan is a writer, speaker, sex educator, and host of the podcast Sex Out Loud. A former syndicated columnist for The Village Voice, she's the author of numerous books, including Opening Up, A Guide to Creating and Sustaining Open Relationships, Down and Dirty Sex Secrets, and The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. She is the founding editor of the best lesbian erotica anthologies, editor of The Ultimate Guide to Kink, BDSM Roleplay, and The Erotic Edge, and co-editor of the feminist porn book, The Politics of Producing Pleasure. I spoke to Tristan about her newest book, a memoir called A Part of the Heart Can't Be Eaten, which goes into her relationship with her father who died of AIDS, as well as her rise to becoming who she is in the sex education and porn world. Um, and I guess just before we officially start, do you have any, any questions or anything? No, no. we're just gonna go. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna go with it. We're gonna go with it. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Tristan, thank you so much for joining me. Funny thing is I feel like we've been at conferences at the same time and stuff, but I've never officially gotten to meet you. So I'm glad to <laughs> be in your presence. <laughs> so our paths have crossed in other words. I think so. You know, I've done like the national coalition of sexual freedom and I made some circuits a while back and I think that you make similar circuits. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, I'm super excited to to get to talk to you. Uh the reason for being for this particular episode is your is your new memoir. Can you just tell us a little bit about it like and all, the title. I'm so curious about the title. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I can um yeah. I can actually yeah, I'll tell you about the title and I'll read a little thing about the title. Perfect. People are really interested in that. So I feel like really this idea first came to me or an idea first came to me back in the 90s. About a year after my father died of AIDS, I thought to myself, I, I want to write about this relationship because my relationship with my father was so deep and so special and his death was quite devastating to me. You know, uh, one of the most important things that happened in my whole life. Mm. And and at that point, I feel like I was like too close to it. And so I, I actually kind of avoided it by writing other books. I was like, you know, I was like sort of on my shoulder talking like, hey, you want to write that book? And it's like, I want to write a book on anal sex, actually. <laughs> hey, you want to yeah. write that book? I want to write a book on open relationships. Let's go. So yeah, so I think it was just too painful and too fresh at the time. And I needed some distance from it. And also just, I needed some distance from my life. This book ends when I'm about 31 years old. I'm 52 now. So um, I think I needed some distance so that I could reflect and have it sort of deeper reflection about the events of my life, um, one of which was my dad's passing. So I started a draft about five years ago. 
And I told my agent, hey, I'm writing the book, which by which it, it it needed no, it needed no title or anything. He knew what I meant. Um, and I was like, I'm writing the book. And then I felt like, okay, I've now told someone that I'm writing the book, so I have to, I have to write the book. Mm. Um, I also started a Patreon and it was a way not only to like connect with folks and also help support me financially while I was writing it, but it was also like an accountability partner, right? It was, it was actually a group of accountability partners because I, you know, once I said I'm writing the book, it was like, okay, now I got to upload chapters. I got to write them. And so I had this draft, um, done and then COVID hit. And I had a lot of time on my hands. I mean, basically all my work dried up. I do a lot of speaking on college campuses. That stopped. I do consulting. You know, lots of places were like really taking a very frugal and austere approach because the economy was tanking. And so all of my sort of income streams dried up. And I had all this time. And in my life, I think I haven't had a lot of just time, you know, uninterrupted time. So then I um, did a big edit, a big rewrite. And then I sent that to my agent and he started, you know, sending it around. But it was, um, yeah, I mean, part of it was the time. Makes sense. Yeah. Talk to us about the title. Okay. There is a chapter in the book about my love of artichokes. <laughs> and I really do. I, I artichokes are my favorite food and my mom introduced me to artichokes when I was very very young. She did it in order to be able as a single mom to go out to a nice dinner and bring me but keep me very very occupied. And it turns out like a 5-year-old takes more than an hour to eat an artichoke. <laughs> so I was like busy, 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 and I assume quiet, right? Um, and so I want to read this little passage, okay, about the artichoke, because I feel like I say it more articulately, like in the book. Mm. Okay. So my dad and I uh, both have the porcupine-like armor of an artichoke, sharp and formidable on the outside, but as you move in closer, something softer and more sensitive. Just when you think you're all the way in, though, another layer of the artichoke appears. Barbed quills that you have to reckon with in order to get to the tender, nourishing heart. Something to savor is so close to something you could choke on. Even though it's the best part, a part of the heart can't be eaten. Yeah, that's great. I, I read that section and I missed the connection with it's the okay. title. It's, it's okay. hilarious. <laughs> but I love that. And I mean, I'm curious, like you do such a beautiful job being so candid. I think about your relationships with your mom and your and your dad. And by the way, like your mom just you have really wonderfully complicated relationships with your both parents, but like your relationship with your mom was allowed to evolve because she lived and I, she just sounds so cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the truth is like we had a very fraught relationship for nearly our entire lives. Mm -hmm. And probably about seven years ago, I 
you know, it's like she she would drive me a little bit crazy and talking on the phone with her would make me anxious and visiting her push my buttons. And it was just all, it was just all really hard. And we, you know, one of the things about my dad is that we were really similar and we really, really understood each other. And I felt like my mom and I have trouble understanding each other and seeing where the other is coming from. And so it's almost like there's not big issues that divide us. It's the small ones. And growing up, she really couldn't meet my emotional needs. She was raised by two parents who both lost their mothers at a really early age. They're both three years old. And so she was raised by a mother who had no mother. And that doesn't give you like a lot of tools in the toolbox, right? Yeah. She did the best she could, but it was really difficult for me growing up to be a really sensitive, really emotional kid and have someone who was not tuned into that. And then when I expressed it, who couldn't help me manage those feelings, understand those feelings, self-soothe. So probably about seven years ago, I was visiting my mom and you know, I felt that same tension just rise up. You could just lock into it the minute we saw each other. You know, I had this feeling like I'm unsatisfied with this relationship. She's unsatisfied with this relationship. And so I asked her the very direct question, mom, what do you want from me? Mm. And she said, I want you to call me once a week. Hmm. Wow. Which is a very clear directive, you know, and and so I I started calling her once a week. I haven't ever missed a week since then. And mm. we've grown closer. She feels like she's more up to date on my life and we are in the best place that we've ever been. In fact, writing this book and even all the difficulties in this book, right? Because our my relationship was not on track with her throughout this whole book has brought us closer together. It's the most unexpected part of this process for me, but it really has. That's beautiful. So I, I told you where I want to head with this. There's just one of the things that I loved reading about your story. I mean, I know any memoir is going to be this learning how to be more self-aware right? Like that, that is our journey. And that's, I think the people drawn to writing memoirs are the people who are drawn to sort of perfecting that self-awareness. So, I mean, I'm sure you don't feel like you were always <laughs> the most self-aware or whatever. It's a journey, but there's so many moments throughout the book where it felt like you were able to consciously make decisions about who you wanted to be or who you, or what you wanted that I just found so admirable. And so, I want to talk about, you know, like learning to trust your sense of yourself and your intuition, but I want to start somewhere. I think that there's some of us that seem to just be really drawn to exploring our sense of self through sexuality. And it's like some kids might grow up like their sense of exploration is all about the outdoors or all about you know, like learning sciences or whatever. And there seems to be this, this group of people that's like, no, it's something about the erotic. And I mean, I relate to that. And I think a lot of people that probably end up becoming sex educators or, you know, those that delve into it 
it feels like this very early fascination. And I'm curious to you, like, what is it about the erotic queerness sexuality that you think is just such an integral part of who you are? That's a great question uh, that no one's ever asked me before. Actually, <laughs> um, You know, part of why I think sex is so powerful is that it is a space where we can do so much, right? So it's a space where we learn, where we teach, where we evolve, where we are challenged, where we explore our bodies and the limits of our own bodies. Um, it's a place where we can explore power dynamics, fantasies, um, sort of an uncensored space for me of play, right? Mm -hmm. A kind of crucible of play. And play is something we, we lose often as adults. We're encouraged not to play, not to use our imaginations, not to pretend. So I feel like it's like sort of this space with unlimited possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt that pretty early on. Even when I was having sort of mundane heterosexual sex, I knew on some level this isn't all there is, right? There's more to unlock here. I, I'm not unlocking it. I don't know how to unlock it quite, but wow, this is this is a space with a lot of potential. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me because I feel the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So there are two small passages I wanted you to read, and I think that we can get into two very different conversations about them. Would you mind reading the first one about your um, what the healer said? Because I think that's an early part of your journey. Yes. Okay. So interestingly, this is in the chapter called Femme is My Gender, which is really very much about... I mean, I'm, I'm exploring my gender throughout the book. And this is sort of my declaration, as it were, my manifesto. In 2012, four years into living with chronic back pain, I had tried any and all treatments, from physical therapy to herbs to acupuncture. On a trip to Los Angeles, my partner's sister said she could get me in to see a much sought-after intuitive healer. He was impossible to book and wildly expensive, but I'd get the friends and family discount. I can't resist a healer or a good deal. I ventured out to his lavish home in Ojai, and something he said has stayed with me. He was reading me, seeing me in all my complexities, and what he was saying was right on target. I was deeply present in the moment to take in the experience without judgment. The masculine and the feminine are at war within you, he said confidently. Then I heard the sound of a record scratch. Wait, what the actual fuck? Later I realized if he was reading my aura or sensing my energy or whatever his particular process was, he was seeing the masculine and feminine in me. So he got that right. Through his heteronormative, deeply gendered lens, he interpreted what he saw as war, because for him, gender was a binary with clear borders. A psychic with a different perspective might have said, oh, you have a complicated gender, or a really good one would say, you're a femme. 
So something that struck me when reading that passage is just your ability to like if somebody was spot on and they're they're coming to you or you're you're coming to them as an expert healer your ability to like look at what they're telling you and say like that's that's not right for me or like that's not your area of expertise or whatever and especially about something that complicated i think especially for f- queer folks it feels like we're constantly having to push back on what society is telling us is wrong about who we think we are. How did you get there to be able to like push back on what they say and just like have a better answer for yourself? You know, I think actually, and we might talk about this later, my astrologer, this amazing astrologer that read my chart, he incorporated non-monogamy into his worldview. Mm. That was really interesting to me, right? And so he said, you know, when I see two people, I think, huh, are these love interests? Uh, are, you know, are these both heart connections? Are they, right? He has a certain interpretation. And when other astrologers see two people, they may say, okay, y- you got to pick one. Or, you know, there's a, there's a decision to be made here. And that's because they're looking at not only their work, but their whole lives through a particular lens, right? They're looking through a particular lens. And so when I got to the healer, I thought, okay, you know what? I, and I saw, you know, the interesting thing is I s- sort of saw him interact with his wife and child mm. because we're at his home before we started the session. And I saw some very traditional gender roles being played out there. So I had that piece of information to then reflect on it. And so he he had a very particular lens. And so the thing is, like, can people see things in us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But their interpretation is going to be based on their worldview, right? Yeah. They're going to interpret it in in very specific ways. And so we have to save room there for the interpretation to not make sense to us or to not reflect who we believe that we are. We can think critically about people with deep, deep wells of knowledge and and gifts that that I don't have, right? we can still read those critically. We can. And I think, you know, for queer folks, gender is and has always been complicated. And we've always had many different genders within queerness. And we've been able to name them and um, express them and acknowledge them. And I don't know that all cis straight people have that same process. Some of them do right? I'm not, I know some cis people with amazing, fascinating genders, but some people kind of fall into these defaults, right? These default categories, man, woman, and they don't necessarily kind of interrogate what those might mean and to them and how they might fit or not fit. Totally. Yeah. I reviewed a book about, um, gender trouble and was talking about how like it doesn't matter if you're queer or not queer like even if you're not questioning your gender identity you should be questioning the ways in which your gender is giving or taking away power Mm -hmm. 
or the multi-generational trauma that comes from traditional gender roles. And I just love that, that it, it's for everybody to be asking these questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have to find the, the name of their book again. I mean, I think more than ever, because there's so much trans visibility, um, visibility around non-binary people, agender people, genderqueer people, the dialogue is at its height right now, right? And, and this is kind of the future I wished for, right? I wished for everyone to have more options and to find their authentic selves. So we are at a time, we're living in a time with more questions and more exploration of gender and much of it public dialogue than ever before. And that's amazing. And it's it's kind of like one of the things cis people can learn from trans people is to think about their genders. Yeah. So do you still identify as a femme? And if so, like how how has that identity shifted for you over over time? Yeah. I do absolutely identify as a femme. Um, I have a tattoo on my leg that says femme, so I have committed to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, whenever you put words on your body, it's like, well, you've committed to that now. Right, right. Um, (laughs) And I think how it's evolved for me is it's just become more multifaceted. You know, I think when I was coming into my femme identity, I was also coming into my kink identity as a bottom and as submissive. And so I was really wrestling with how can I be a feminist? How can I stand in my power and my autonomy and also submit to a partner? Mm. And then that really evolved into me exploring my dominant side for decades, actually, decades. And so femme became something with other layers to it in terms of power dynamics and in terms of like the way that I walked in the world. And for me, it's about kind of femininity with an edge. It's about queer femininity and how that is different from the traditional trappings of femininity, right? It's about sort of expand. It's like about maximalism, minimalism, expanding, um, twisting, putting it on, on its head. And that has always been, for me, like what femme is. And then also, I really, really enjoy the dance, the dynamic, the desire between me and mask folks. Um, in the book, it's really focused around butch women, and now we've got a real big spectrum of people who identify as masculine. And so that sort of dance with specifically queer masculinity, which of course is also different, right, from yeah. a kind of cis heteronormative masculinity, right? There's a lot more layers and a lot more complexities and a lot more nuance to queer folks who are masculine. And to me, and I call it a dance because it it feels like a dance. To me, that interplay and that desire that kind of like sparks up, it's just the most powerful piece in my sexuality. Mm. Like it's just what sets me on fire. And I just 
started seeing someone new who identifies as butch. And so they're, they're like, there's a kind of a full circle moment happening in my life, which is fascinating because I wrote my memoir and now it's like everything old is new again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and different because I know so much more, right? I, I have so much more life experience. And so because I've been partnered with mostly trans mask and non-binary people in the past two decades, I am finding myself newly exploring what it means to be femme, what it means to be with a butch. And it is, it's more powerful than it's ever been. Mm, Sure. I will admit that there was not a small amount of envy (laughs) reading so many of your amazing explorations with butch women throughout your, I guess your 20s and 30s or your 20s. And I think part of what was exciting for me, like living through you, is is that you go into these relationships like thinking like, all right, this is going to be like my top, my dom. And then as like comfort levels and, and trust and builds, then you end up switching with them. And there's just that broadening of what you get to play with as our roles in a relationship begin to develop and expand. I guess that that's what sticks out to me when I think about like how you're getting to explore what it means to be femme, what it means to somebody else to be butch or trans mask or whatever is like, it starts out as this one thing and it just keeps expanding, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we're human and we're like so much more complicated than we've been led to believe, right? Um, And so when you become aware of and can be articulate about power, because there's power in every relationship, mm-hmm. every relationship we ha- I called the plumber today because my, to- something's wacky is going on with my toilet. Right. And in that brief exchange with the office, there's a power dynamic, right? There is a power dynamic and there's multiple power dynamics, by the way, because the plumber is the expert. I'm not, but also I'm paying the plumber. Mm -hmm. right? So he works for me, right? So there's like all these layers of power. And once you can see that, well, you can't unsee it, first of all, (laughs) once you see it. And you can examine it. And especially within sexual situations, you can really, really massage it, play with it, look underneath the hood, you know, jiggle it from side to side, see what falls out. You never know. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Let's move on to that piece with your astrologer. Yes. So this is my amazing astrologer who read my, I mean, read my chart probably like 12 years ago. Nice. An astrologer once read my birth chart and said I was living my dharma. Making pornography is a part of my life's work. It's one iteration of my mission to create and hold judgment-free, affirming space for pleasure. I mean, it's just, it's a simple little passage there. (laughs) It is. But I, you know, obviously like this is, my podcast tends to try to um, find those intersections between spirituality, whatever the hell that means, and, and the erotic and sexuality. So I latch on to words like healer and astrologer. But um what a beautiful 
thing to hear that you're living in your dharma. Like, what did that mean to you then, and what does it mean to you now? Yeah, it was quite. It was it was startling to hear someone articulate it, mm-hmm. and I already knew it on some level. And he explained that, like, sometimes in someone's chart, he will see this like artistic passion, right? And someone essentially could be on a path and then they just get, they veer off the path and we veer off the path for so many reasons. And some of them are like, quite frankly, practical and that we have to live and survive under capitalism. And Mm -hmm. we can't always translate our deepest passion into also supporting ourselves and creating the life we want around that, whatever it may be. So that made sense to me that like in the beginning of our lives, we may find something that really grips us and for reasons known and unknown, we have to veer off. Mm. And so he was essentially saying there was this path laid out for you. You know, you're born in 1971. You're the quintessential third wave feminist. And there was this path laid out for you. And boy, have you stuck to it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And what it what it made me, I mean, it was very affirming. Obviously, it was very affirming. And one thing that I, I didn't write in the book, but which he also told me was that there were still closets to come out of for me, you know, which is like, it's a very queer thing, right? Coming out is not like a finite process. It just keeps going on and on. And he said, you are in the closet about being a spiritual leader. Mm, wow. And that kind of hit me right between the eyes. I was like, yeah, really? That I, mm." and at that point in my life, I was just beginning to sort of dip my toes into studying Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I didn't think of myself as a spiritual leader at all um, because I felt like I was just finally exploring a spirituality that made sense to me Mm. because that's like first and foremost, Buddhism resonated with me. And so I just thought, could that even be true? But of course that stays with you, right? That stays with you in your head when someone so like with someone with such a gift says all these things, it totally makes sense. And then they say this other thing and you're like, well, how could that one not make sense if all these other things made sense? (laughs) So I, I think about that. Um, a lot. I think about like what that means and what that could look like. Because I think when people think of me, that's not the first thing they think of. Oh, Tristan, she's a spiritual leader. <laughs> no, I wouldn't call myself that. So uh, that that's really st- stuck with me. And there was just so much validation in that reading. I think about I'm doing my life's work and I'm doing the work that I was meant to do. And, and I think that's why it feels fulfilling. I still want to do it. I don't feel like I'm done doing my work on this earth, um, in this lifetime. And so, so in some ways he said it and I was like, wait, what? And then on, on another side, I thought, I know that somewhere very deeply. I know that this is what I was meant for. You know, I wonder if, Some of the tension is that when we think about spirituality, 
our understanding of what that means and our language around it has been so dominated by religious rhetoric and dogma, you know, that we lose track of like what spirituality is capable of or or what could possibly reside in that realm. And for me, I think anything that brings us closer to a sense of of healing and self-love and being able to tap into that intuition is spiritual. And that's all of your work, you know? <laughs> I I don't know if you feel the same or if that resonates, but no, that does that definitely resonates with me. I've always felt like I have a really strong sense of intuition. Mm -hmm. There are times when I don't have all the information, right? So I'm, I'm meeting someone or I've come up with some wacky idea that people have told me is not a good idea. <laughs> um, or I've come into some space and again, I haven't been there very long and yet I feel like it's where I'm meant to be, like in my soul. And I've always followed my intuition. I've always followed my gut. And it has taken me to incredible places. Even when people have discouraged me from going to some of those places, even when there have been naysayers who've said, like, what do you think you're doing? Or this hasn't been done before. Or how could you even how could you feel so connected to this person in such a short amount of time? Why do you think you wandered into that thing? And then all of a sudden you were like, this is exactly where I'm meant to be. It's my intuition. Like I, there's no other way to explain it because if I sort of rationally analyze the situation, I wouldn't necessarily be there or do that or connect with that person. But instead I, I really have to sort of, tell my rational brain, listen, my heart knows something different and you've got to trust me. I've done a lot of interviewing of therapists, trauma-informed therapists, especially things around like sexual assault or, you know, like healing from CPTSD or all these things that, that talk about learning to trust your body, trust your gut, trust your intuition as a way of sort of reclaiming some control. And I think there's a disconnect when we tell people that, like, what that actually means and how you practice it and hone in on it. Because if you just tell somebody, just trust your gut. It, I mean, I feel like for so much, I, I struggle with this too. I'm like, but my gut is saying five different things and my brain's saying one thing and my body's saying another. And sometimes I know not to trust my body because my body's just horny. Like, how do you how do you guide people to learn what that actually means? Wow. I mean, that's a... I know it's a big question. That's a big <laughs> question. That's a yeah. big question. And and it, it, it's true. You know, it, what it reminds me of is in sexual education, um, we're constantly, or one of the sort of repeated refrains is, you know, you have to ask for what you want. Get what you want. Yeah. And yeah. people will respond to that what if I don't know what I want? Right, right. <laughs> well, then then all the oral sex tips and techniques and tricks I give you don't mean anything because yeah. you don't know what you want. Yeah. You don't know who you are 
sexually, right? And so if you, it's like we're too, we've skipped a step. We've skipped a really, really big step um, sometimes in sex ed. And we have to sort of go back to that step and say, oh, right, because I feel like I've honed the sense of who I am and what I want. And it comes quite naturally to me, right? It, it feels pretty fluid. It, it feels accessible. It feels accessible. Maybe I won't say natural. It feels very accessible to me. It's not hidden in the deep recesses somewhere that I have to really, 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 really travel to get to it. I feel like I know it and I can access it often in the moment. And I realize that when people like listen to their inner voice, first of all, we got a lot of inner voices, right? We've got, we right. got, we got inner voices for days and they are, they can be cruel and they can be mean. And I mean, mine are absolutely, they're judgmental. Uh, they're sometimes they're more, they're cautious. They don't want to take risks. And sometimes they're like, let's just go for it. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, that's not, <laughs> that isn't the best course of action. So it's hard just to, to sort of reconcile all those different voices who are telling you things that may be contradictory, like that may be mm -hmm. paradoxical. Um, I think we should be less afraid of the paradox. Mm. I feel very, I mean, I've done dialectical behavior therapy. And so I feel like it really resonates with me. And I, I feel very dialectical, which is like, you know, you are both scared and excited, right? Totally. You are both challenged and comforted. You know, yeah. it can be both. Like we can live in the both and we don't have to fight it and sort of pick one. I feel like the United States is really into picking one. We're really into binaries and we're really into like check boxes and we're really into what do you want? Here's the menu. You can't have two things. You have to have one thing. And I want to live in a world where we can embrace the both, the both part. And so it doesn't seem like there's chaos in our brains or in our hearts or in our souls, right? Because I think when we hear all the voices, what does it sound like? It sounds like chaos, right? It does not sound like clarity at all. And sometimes you just have to like sit with that for a minute and then decide, okay, I'm, I'm having these multiple feelings. Some of those things feel contradictory. How do I make sense of this and move forward? And I also think we have to pay attention to the inner censor. There is a culture that tells us a lot of things we should not do, we should not think, we should not feel. Living under rape culture tells us we shouldn't trust our own interpretation of stuff that happened to our own bodies. Mm -hmm. so, so the force is working against us in terms of like, structural forces in terms of deeply embedded cultural meanings, they're working against us. They're working against us. And so at some point we have to sort of break free from you should want this or you should do this and instead push that out of the way and say, okay, if there is no should, if I'm not paying attention to that, if that guideline doesn't work for me, what's left in front of me? Mm. What's left in front of me and can I see it and can I act on it? 
And what's the, <laughs> and then learning from that, like if you do act on it, what was the result? Are you happy with it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Because, the, and that's just, that's trust, right? Um, we talk a lot about trusting other people. How can we build trust with other people? How can we build trust after trauma? How can we build trust when we have, you know, PTSD and triggers and often people trigger us without meaning to, they just trip the line. They don't mean to, it's not intentional. Um, so how do we, how do we trust when people we love hurt us? How, how do we trust when we feel harmed by, you know, really important people in our lives? So we talk a lot about bu building trust and how to build trust with people in relationship, but we don't necessarily talk a lot about building trust with ourselves saying, this feels right, and I need to trust that I know what's best for me, or I know that I need to turn the page, or I know what my body needs. I know to the extent that I can know my emotional state. Because obviously, like, there's also unconscious things going on floating around and we're sometimes doing things and we can't, we can't see 100% of the motivation, right? But you know what you do know. And that's information to dig into rather than kind of shut down. That's the inner sensor. The inner sensor shuts you down. The inner sensor makes you doubt your own gut feeling it contradicts it sometimes. That's the voice that we have to override often. Mm. But the voice has been so well developed, both internally and externally, from all of these sort of standards and norms that we're supposed to live by. Yeah. I saw something on Instagram, and I'm going to mess it up, but like it was something around that sometimes that inner critic you hear is just societal messages and it's not actually your conscience. And so like sort of step one is like being able to intellectually consider, is that a cultural message or is that an, a deeper sense of consciousness? I mean, this is like when you look in the mirror and you hate your body. You were not born hating your body. You were not born hating your body. That is absolutely what society wants you to do by setting up these standards of what a body should look like, what a desirable, sexy body is, mm. and yeah, how can we not internalize that? We're swimming in it. We're swimming in it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It's going to be an inner voice. <laughs> right. It's like, how can we not internalize that? And so we've got to just take steps to sort of recognize that and go, oh, I know who you are. And you're not the best source of information, actually. Yeah. I think your memoir serves as a really powerful example of learning how to hone it in. And going back to that passage with the astrologer, the thing that I loved about it was, I think it was your um, undergrad thesis advisor that, you know, you were looking into law school and your thesis advisor was like, Tristan, you want to write about sex, you know? And yeah. There's a fluidity in of who you were and how you came into your own that only happens when like you're making choice after choice and then reflecting on those choices. So I have a sign on my mirror in my bedroom which says 
listen to wisdom. Mm. Now, I wrote that sign way after Claire Potter, my professor, told me I should write about sex <laughs> because sometimes people know more than you do. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to actually say, oh, wait. And when I say that, I mean, <sighs> there are moments in life where wisdom presents itself in all sorts of forms. So I want to tell you the story. Um, uh, I went into REI, this is probably like, I don't know, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need new hiking shoes because the laces, or I need new laces because the laces on my shoes come undone all the time. And I'm like double knotting and I'm, you know, all this stuff, right? And so the laces always come undone on my shoes. And so I obviously like, I need new laces or I need a new style or something's going on. And the woman who was helping me said, show me how you tie your shoes. And I tied my shoes and she said, that's not the best way to tie your shoes. Mm, funny. And I thought, I'm like 40, <laughs> 40 something. And you're saying to me, I don't know how to tie my shoelaces. And in that moment, I was like, that's what she's saying. So you can either listen <laughs> or you can like double down and keep tying your shoelaces wrong and keep having them come untied. So every time I tie my shoelaces now, I think we, we have to listen. You know, like people are giving mm. us clues all the time and we sometimes resist them. We resist them because of our ego. We resist them because we're like, I know better. We resist them because we're embarrassed. But actually, sometimes we just have to listen. Mm. And it's such a, it's like, it's the simplest story, right? But it's like really profound for me because it also reminds me that like at 40, at 50, I can learn new things. Yeah. Right. I don't have to stay stuck in a place. I, I can learn new things that bring more joy to my life or at least bring more function to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because my shoelaces never get untied now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. We have to listen to wisdom. And sometimes yeah. that wisdom co comes internally and sometimes it comes from someone else. That's beautiful. Well, Let's end on that. Um, thank you again for joining and, and just having this conversation about intuition and writing the book that really showcases what it is. Thank you so much. That, that, that kind of flew by. Did that fly by? Yeah. <laughs> it did, yeah. <laughs> okay, that really flew by. I was like, why are we wrapping up? It's only five <laughs> after 10. Oh my right? gosh. Right. All right.